Gavin Kaysen is a James Beard Award winner as well as the founder of the Soigne Hospitality Group in Minneapolis. In less than a decade, he's grown his brand to include a half dozen unique concepts and counting. On today's episode, we cover everything from uh, growing pains, technology, marketing, and the future of hospitality. Mostly, though, I try to dig in to find out the secret to his success. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast dedicated entirely to the hospitality industry. We cover marketing operations and just about everything in between. Each week, I leverage my 20-plus years in the industry to help you build a more profitable and a more sustainable business. I also work directly with operators all over the world through my group coaching programs to address and overcome the specific challenges we face in our industry. Curious to learn more? Set up a free 30-minute strategy session at restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Let me show you how simple it can be to run a profitable restaurant. Again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. As always, you'll find that link in the show notes. Now, we all know that managing costs is one of the most important parts of running a profitable restaurant, especially now. But between fluctuating vendor prices, waste, labor, and the never-ending list of tasks that demand your attention on a daily basis, it can be challenging for even the most experienced of us to manage costs well. That's where Margin Edge comes in. Margin Edge is a complete restaurant management software that automatically uses data from your POS and invoices to show you your food and labor costs in real time. Don't wait until it's too late. Margin Edge gives you tools to make decisions in the moment, like a daily P&L, price alerts on key ingredients, and real-time plate costs, all without ever having to touch a spreadsheet. Take control of your costs, work more efficiently, and be more profitable. Learn more at marginedge.com chip. That link is also in the show notes. Now. At the top of the show, I said that Chef Gavin Kaysen was a James Beard Award winner, and actually that was a lie because he has won that award twice. First in 2008, the Rising Star Chef Award, and then again in 2018 as Best Chef Midwest. But I hope you won't hold that against me. There's a ton we're going to cover during the, today's interview. Gavin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um if you can, give the listeners a little bit of context, because um, you and I had crossed paths here in New York City. We both sort of grew up in the, the fine dining world here. Um, you were here for a very long time. That's that's how I knew you, and, and now you're not there anymore. You Now you're in Minneapolis to go do your own thing. That's the thrust of what I want to talk about during this interview, because um, I think what you're doing out there is really interesting, and I think it's sort of... Um, emblematic of, of what's going on across this country, certainly in food culture. But um, for the listeners at home, talk to people about uh, how you came to food, uh, what brought you to New York, what you did here in New York. Got to talk about the James Beard Award. And uh, ultimately, I want to know kind of what brought you away. And uh, we'll use that as the the launch pad for, for so much else that we're going to talk about today. Sure. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot wrapped up in all of that. So, uh, you know, I was I was I grew up in Minnesota. 
I was born actually out on the West Coast in L.A. Grew up here. My parents moved here when I was seven years old. So in terms of context of, of why I choose Minneapolis, which is often a question, um, which I can't argue with when you have winter storm warnings like today and every other day in the, in the winter, um, you know, I grew up here. So there's a, there's a lot of home for me here. And my family is here, uh, my mom and dad, my brother, et cetera. I left, I left Minnesota and went to culinary school in Vermont, and then I had the, the luxury of being able to travel around the world. And I did so um, in, in part. I lived in Switzerland and London, all, all different spots. And then I ended up landing in, in San Diego and then ultimately New York City. And I took the job uh, in New York City to work for Danielle Balud. It was it's, it's an interesting story as to how that happened. But I had written Danielle a letter in 2005, and I had requested to do a one-week stage at Restaurant Danielle. And my intention was really to see what it was like uh, at that level. And I wanted to see it selfishly without commitments. I wanted to know if it, if it sparked something inside of me that I wanted to then further explore or if it terrified me, I knew that I never wanted to be a part of that world. So I, I, I worked with Danielle at restaurant Danielle for one week and I was, I was invigorated and curious and excited. And I really, really wanted to be a part of that universe. I went back to San Diego and probably a year later, maybe less uh, through, through time of Danielle and I getting to know one another and cooking with each other. He ended up offering me the executive sous chef position at restaurant Danielle. In the time in which I accepted that role, the chef de cuisine of Cafe Balud had resigned. And so Danielle called me back and said, well, I've got to change your job. Actually, you're going to take over at Cafe Balud as our, as our chef, <laughs> which to him was a casual conversation. To me, that was a really big change of commitments. Uh, and up until this point, the only other chef that had been hired from outside the company to lead a kitchen for him was Andrew Carmelini. So I knew the role that I was filling and I knew the shoes that I was was going to stand in were, were rather large and frankly were were too big for me um but it didn't it didn't it didn't scare me i still wanted to go after it and i still wanted to try it and the one thing that i will always say and have always said about working for danielle is that it was the phd for me in this business i learned about i learned the difference between hospitality and service um i learned about what it meant to run a brigade i learned about what it meant to to genuinely mean when you're with your family of, of, of fellow restaurant workers that there's a, a genuine sincerity to that. Uh, it's, it's not just a cliche moment. Um, I learned so much working for him, and I worked for him for a little over eight years. Uh, and then I found myself uh, coming to a bit of a fork in the road, frankly, and I was trying to figure out if I wanted to <clears throat> work at Cafe Blue forever or work for Danielle forever or if I wanted to move on uh, and, and forge my own path. And I've been keeping an eye on Minneapolis for a number of years, not with, to be frank, not with intent of actually moving back, but more out of curiosity and trying to understand what is it happening? What is happening in Minneapolis and why is, why, why am I starting to hear more and more about it? And I remember coming back home on a Tuesday, I landed at the airport and I called the restaurant to make a reservation. And they said, well, the earliest we have is nine 30. I thought, wow, hmm. nine 30 on a Tuesday is the earliest they have. That's telling me something. But I kept watching and watching, uh, and then I finally made the move to, to move back home, and that was eight years ago to open Spoon and Stable. That's crazy. I, I want to I, I want to I want to dig into all the Minneapolis stuff, but I, I want to go back to New York a little bit because because I want to talk about that education, and I want to talk right because 
Because the way that cooks and chefs and restaurant managers were trained 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago is different than they are over the last, let's say, 20 years. And so, I mean, we've had the rise of culinary schools. Um, that certainly mm -hmm. didn't exist 50 years ago. Um, certainly mm -hmm. not in the way that it does now. Um, you you learned by staging uh, back in back in the day, and you sort of worked your way up, and you work enough stations, and you eventually get the keys to the kingdom and all that. So talk to me a little bit about the education that you got, um, because being fairly young, filling the the shoes that you did at Cafe Balloud, which is um, which was not an easy room uh, to work. I know people who worked the front door, uh, the front door. I know people who worked on the floor. Uh, it was it was not an easy place, um, and I imagine you coming in the way you did. That was not easy. So you had said it was an education. So talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, I took that job. I was twenty eight years old, you know, and and I walked into that kitchen, and it was a very difficult kitchen to take over. Not because of how. Um, the culture of the kitchen was, but more because of the reputation that it carried. You know, it was, first of all, people have to realize that Cafe Blue on 76 Madison, which now is no longer there, yeah. was the original restaurant, Danielle, that he built in 1994. And then in 1998, he moved it down to 65th and Park, which used to be Le Cirque. Uh, and then he opened up Cafe Blue the same year with Andrew Carmelini. So when Andrew was a sous chef for him at Le Cirque. So, I, I, what I recognize is that I walked into a, it felt like walking into a big dinner party and everybody was on their main courses and already a bottle of wine deep. Yeah. <laughs> and I was looking for a chair to sit at. And, and I can tell you with sincerity, Danielle got up and pulled the chair out for me. Yeah. And so that, that gave me a lot of strength. It gave me a lot of confidence to know that I had his support. I knew that the, I knew that the vestib vestibule always said cafe Boulud. And it was Danielle's. I was very aware of that. I was very um, respectful of that. But I wanted to make sure that I ran it as though it was mine because I was there to learn. I was there. I, again, I took the stage. And frankly, I took the job with Danielle. The same reason I took, you know, moved to Minneapolis. I wanted to further my education. I, I often think to myself, where I'm going to feel the most uncomfortable is probably exactly where I want to be. And at that point in my career, I was very comfortable where I was in San Diego. I had an opportunity to stay in San Diego and open up a restaurant. I had investors. I had spaces. I had everything you can imagine. Now, imagine if I would have taken that job because six months later, the financial meltdown happened. Yep. And everything that I had thought that I would have had pretty much crashed in San Diego. And here I was in this little bubble in New York City on the Upper East Side of Manhattan where that bubble wasn't really bursting so much. People maybe spent a little bit less money on wine. They maybe came in once a week and not three times a week, but we were still busy. And, and we were grateful for those guests. So, so the education was not just on food. It wasn't on, you know, just learning about how to make, make the dishes I was making with Danielle. It was about educating myself with the team and then, and then also then with the guests. And that hospitality and that focus, it's so ingrained in me now that, you know, frankly, it, I, I, I run my company as an extension of that because it, it's, yep. it's, what I, it's what I know. Um, and it's, what I, it's not even what I feel comfortable with. It's what continues to challenge me. Right. Talk to me about that job because as you were there all those years, um, one of the things, I mean, you said it was, you know, it was Chef Danielle's name on the door. It was his restaurant. You were a caretaker. You were aware of that. And yet, I don't think that's entirely true, or at least it 
I don't know that that was true by the end because certainly your name was known around town and there's a point when it became just as much your restaurant as I think it ever was Danielle's. So that was the feeling that it was sort of you had taken over. It was it was very much um, your identity and all that. Do you, is that fair, number one? And, and do you remember when that that sort of began to evolve and it became because your name became synonymous with that that place and um and certainly i think it was a reflection of as much your taste and your abilities as it was danielle's yeah and i, I you know i think it <clears throat> i think what was so interesting about when i left new york was sort of the shock waves that it sent through new york city because people were like wait what why would he leave mm-hmm. new york why would you leave danielle you know i was i i think it's fair to say that yeah i was i was his right hand you know i mean everybody sort of if we were out together, we were out together. If, 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 and, and we were, we were next to each other all the time. We were doing things together all the time. And, and I was at Cafe Belude and running Cafe Belude and was there all of the time. And I loved every minute of it, but it wasn't, I still knew deep down in my gut that I wanted to create my own. And that, yeah. and, and what made it, I think what made, so to answer your first question, when did it transfer over? When did it feel like it started to become more of mine? You know, to be fair, I don't think it ever felt like that to me because <laughs> I always respected the fact that it was his. But sure. there was a time when I went to Lyon, I went to France without him, and I went to go put all of our equipment away for Boku Store uh, when I was training the team. And all of my equipment was in a storage unit, and I moved it all to his mom and dad's barn, which is in, which is just about 20 minutes, 20 minutes outside of Lyon, France. So I show up to his parents' barn, and I put everything in, in the barn, I get done and his father, Julian, comes out and offers me a, an espresso and some, some pastries. We drink the espresso, we eat some pastries, and then that turned into like a four-hour lunch. We had like lamb, we had a bottle of burgundy, um, and it was just a really, really magical afternoon. And I remember calling Danielle, leaving his, his, his parents' farm, and I was driving back into this city of Lyon, and I said, I, I get it now. Like, I get why you're the chef you are because of who they are and how you were raised like that what they provided to me that hospitality is effectively the same hospitality that we're delivering to our guests every night but in such a refined way but the core that was the core i saw where it all started and then i really kind of took took me by took me by surprise to realize that the room that i was having lunch with them in was the original cafe balloon built in 1901 and so they live in the house that they live in was the original Cafe Balloon. So now wrap your head around the fact that you're the chef of the restaurant called Cafe Balloon that actually has history dating back to 1901. So really all I am now is a carrier of this legacy. And I think once I realized that, uh, it, it started to change for me because there's a humility that goes along with that. There, there's an understanding that the restaurant that you're running is far bigger than who you are, or what you want to become. And, and ultimately, if you can run it in the, in the, in the manner of, of respect of understanding what that history is, it will become yours and people will think of it as yours and you will be identified as part of that restaurant forever. Uh, and, and that's and what ended up happening to what, to what you said. Um, and and that wasn't by intent ever. It was just a matter of the results of understanding of really where where Cafe Balloon started, and and that I was sort of a carrier of that legacy. 
Um, and it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful restaurant. And so I think, you know, anyone uh, who's been had the pleasure of working at a place like that, certainly like an institution and um, not even a restaurant, you know, and a, an identity that goes back that that long. I certainly appreciate that. And, um, you know, when I was at Gotham Bar and Grill, worked there for eight years, that restaurant is now 39 years young and it's got a, you know, it means so much to so many different people. Uh, you know, you're just sort of a, a caretaker. So I appreciate that. Talk to me about, okay, so you're starting to feel you need to stretch your wings. You can only do so much here. It will always be Danielle's. You will always be sort of a, a caretaker of of that. Did you ever did you ever think about trying to open your own place in New York? Um, certainly, you must have had access and means to do that. or, or was it always um, was it always was there always an eye towards towards home, towards Minneapolis? No, I, I certainly did. I mean, I looked at spaces in New York City. I looked at spaces in Southern California where I had come from as well. And then I eventually looked at spaces in Minneapolis. It's just <clears throat> what's funny about the universe is that when you stop to actually pay attention to it every once in a while, it might be delivering to you exactly what you want. And you just had no idea that it was there. What 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 happened to me is that I was running Cafe Blue to New York, and then I was eventually Danielle's director of culinary operations, I think was my official title. Uh, that doesn't fit on a chef coat, by the way. And <laughs> I was I was running the Cafe Balloon in New York City, Toronto, and Palm Beach, Florida. So my life was busy. My life was running up and down the coast and managing teams from all over the you know, the the, the coast essentially. And it, it, I spend a lot of time, and I still do, journaling and writing down my thoughts and writing down what it is that I want to achieve and writing down things that are frustrating and, and hard and, you know, all of the vulnerable things that you probably don't want a lot of people to read. I write all those like everybody else probably does. And through all of those learnings and that journaling, I realized that the itch inside of me was just to really, I wanted to open up something on my own. And so I became very open and honest with Danielle about that process. And I made sure to say to him, I'm not going to just leave. Okay. This is, there's no intention of me walking into your office any day and say, here's my three month notice. Here's my month notice. Here's my six month notice. Eventually it will happen, but I will always be in communication as to what's going on. And so he helped me through the process. Uh, he helped me find um, business plans you know marcel Darone, who was his chief financial officer at the time uh i don't know if you remember marcel but marcel used to walk me through you know profit loss statements and um help me understand how to build pro formas and all of those things mm -hmm. so you know his team was really helpful in this process this was not a this was collaborative uh danielle eventually became an investor in my company uh as a result and so it was a really beautiful exchange the hardest question that I had to answer was, was I ready to leave New York City? Hmm. And that took me three years to answer that question because I wasn't ready to leave New York City. And New York City to me is still the best city in the world. And, and, and I love it. And I love living there. And I love going back to visit it. And I would never rule out opening a restaurant in that, re in that city someday. Um, but I just found the right space at the right time in my life in Minneapolis. And I jumped on it. And that's kind of what it came down to. I, 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 I'm lucky, grateful to know that that then coincided uh, with this incredible surge of people opening up their awareness um, and the media opening up their opportunity to write about chefs and restaurateurs and owners who weren't in New York, L.A., San Francisco, and Chicago. 
They were excited yep. about the B market cities and they were excited about what, what they were doing and what we are doing. And part of it is because people are very well traveled, number one. And number two, you know, let's let's not forget European dining started out because of the great smaller cities, not just because of Paris. Uh, you know, and so that that's all that's all kind of wrapped up in part of this. Yeah, and and that's really the it gets to the heart of what I want to talk about because uh, for a long time it was those four cities that you mentioned. New York, Chicago, L.A., and then San Francisco, it was for a while. Um, and certainly there are important things happening in all of those areas. But the real story over the last 10 or 15 years um, is sort of the the surge of great dining in these smaller markets. Charleston, Charleston's a food town. Nashville is now becoming this great food town. Uh, Minneapolis, in large part, uh, you know, thanks to you and everything you've done over the last eight years. Um, Philadelphia, Austin. I mean, there, there are really great um, – there are really great – restaurants opening in some of these smaller markets. And I think that's interesting. Um, and I think that's worth uh, talking about because that didn't happen prior to 10 or 15 years ago, certainly not um, to the degree it is now. So, okay, so you found the right space and you weren't thinking you were going to you know, lead this charge necessarily, even though you very much ended up sort of being a part of it. Um mm. You go there to open uh, what becomes Spoon and Stable. So talk to me about that restaurant and and what that restaurant was all about. Yes, yeah, so I walk into this space. It's 7,000 square feet, and it's an office building. The floor to ceiling, it's 26 feet, 24 feet, something like that from floor to ceiling. There's two long skylights that, that are 90 feet. Um, so you can see the, the, the sun, sun is shining through the space the whole time. Uh, which in the summertime is until 10 o'clock at night. Now in the winter, the sun's setting, you know, at 4.30, 5 o'clock. So <clears throat> you have this this mood swing. So I walk into this space, and I love how open it is. I love the fact that it's an office building I can demo. I love that it has history. It was built in 1906. And it's in a neighborhood called the North Loop. Now, at the time, the only other restaurant on the street was across the street from me, and it was a restaurant called The Bachelor Farmer, which has since closed. It, it did 10 years here, and, and it was a great run. And it was owned by uh, two guys named Eric and Andrew Dayton, and their father at the time was the governor of our state. So my, my, my real estate expertise, which is zero, said, well, if the governor of this, if the son's governor, the buys a building in this neighborhood, he has to think that there's promise in this neighborhood, right? And so right. then I go and I take, I end up taking then the Spoon and Stable space and and we open it up November 14th of 2014. Um, and it, you know, it, it, it opened up with a lot of success. I mean, it was, it was, what's so funny is I leave New York City, I come to Minneapolis to open up a restaurant in Minneapolis and on my third night uh, of that restaurant, the New York Times is in for dinner. <laughs> and uh, I just think it's funny because it's like I'm not even in New York anymore. And and uh, what happened was is Kim Severson and Sam Sifton were traveling through the Twin Cities to go to Wisconsin to do a story on cranberries. And they wanted to stop and eat. And we were fully booked. And so they emailed the media at spoonandstable.com website or email address or whatever it was. Well, at the time, that was going to me. I didn't have anybody right. else to look at it. Yeah. And so I get this email from Kim and Sam, and I'm like, sure, no problem. I got you guys all set at 7 o'clock. <laughs> um, 
my general manager was like, chef, we don't have a table for them. I said, just buy a table and we got to figure yeah. this out. <laughs> you know? But it's just, you know, so Spoon has been open for eight years. Um, we just passed our eight year anniversary a couple months ago. And it's still, it's still knock on wood. It's still going great. I mean, it's a beautiful restaurant. It's in a beautiful neighborhood. That neighborhood is putting a lot of money. Uh, the the banks and the investors and people are putting a lot of money into that neighborhood this year uh, and where it's going to become very much a restaurant row. I mean, we're going from literally being the only restaurant and bakery. I have a bakery across the street. So Spoon and Stables here. I have a bakery across the street. And then behind Spoon and Stable, I have Demi, our other restaurant. We're going from that to then expanding. To, I, mean, I mean, we're not going to expand, but there's probably six restaurants coming into that street in the next year. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very cool area. I was there maybe I don't know nine years ago, and you could just yeah. see what it was going to become because it's all these this warehouse space and sort of reclaimed. Um, it's a very very cool area down there. So talk to me about what talk to me about what Spoon and Stable is because one of the things I'm always interested in um, is product market fit. Uh, it's something I talk about a great deal uh, with my clients. Uh, we we certainly talk about it a lot on this show. Um, I always say that, you know, there's two things that a restaurant needs to succeed, right? Which is understanding their path to profitability. Like, how do they make money on paper? If you don't know how you're going to make money on paper, um, you don't know mm -hmm. how to do it in real life. Um, and the other thing mm -hmm. is understanding product market fit, understanding who wants something, who has a need that you can, um, that you can fulfill. So... And I always say that restaurants die because they don't understand product market fit. They, they uh, present a restaurant uh, that nobody wants, nobody needs. Uh, and mm -hmm. then they struggle if they don't have a path to profitability. So you've obviously got both of them locked down. So I want to sort of skate over that and, and, and dig in a little bit if we can. Talk to me about, you looked at this neighborhood, you saw what it was going to become. You saw this space, you saw what that space could become. There are plenty of people who can put a great restaurant in a great space, um, but putting a great restaurant in a great space that will serve the community that isn't even really fully fleshed out there, that took some vision. So talk to me a little bit about that, this idea of looking at a neighborhood and understanding what they need, what they need that you're uniquely qualified to provide them with. Yeah, I mean, part of it is naive risk, you know, and I say that because you know, when you when you look at a restaurant or you look at a space, you're right. I mean, you have to be able to fill this gap that the neighborhood needs or the city needs. It has to be profitable. Both of those are real. But to achieve that, you have to also be able to take a risk in the sense of how am I going to get there? Because I'm going to hit 15 hurdles before I even get to that point. Now, Spoon and Stable was originally a restaurant called Merchants. And my business plan, that's how I sold it. And when I when I did all of my press, that's that was the name of the restaurant. We changed the name to Spoon and Stable about a month before we opened because there were a lot of merchants, hmm. restaurants called Merchant around the Midwest. Closest one was in Madison, Wisconsin. And the owners called me and said, you know, you can't call your restaurant that. Now, legally, that's not totally true because you can't even trademark the name Merchant. Um, so I just happened to own the domain Spoon and Stable, and the restaurant was a horse stable that was built in 1906. And so there was a similarity to, to at least a story tied into that. Now, that got us even more press. And a lot of people were like, well, that was smart. Well, there was, I mean, there was nothing. Trust me, I didn't want to do that. But it ended up working out in our, in our favor. What I recognized and what I felt we needed here in our community was Minnesota, Minnesotans are typically um, – and I can say this with with respect because I'm one of them. We're we're a little shy to show off who we are. 
and I'll give you an example. If you if you were to visit me today and it's snowing outside, I would apologize to you that it's snowing outside, as if though I have a light switch to control that. <laughs> so you know, we tend to be reserved and sort of a bit passive aggressive, and then and then also we don't want everybody to know about us. But if you don't pay attention to us, we're going to be upset that you don't. And I and you know, a part of me had this sort of like brash New York mentality of being there for eight years and coming back and being like, no, you know what? Know about us. Like we are we are a fantastic city. You know, we spend a lot of money on the, in the community on our arts and our music. Uh, you know, we should we should care a lot about our restaurants. We should care a lot about hospitality. <clears throat> the hospitality was the part that I felt we needed the most of. And and when I opened Spoon, I was really I was really dead set on on I wanted people to leave the restaurant and 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 say to themselves and say to me that was one of the best experiences I ever had. And I didn't want it to be about the food. And I'll repeat that again because I'm a chef. I didn't want it to be about the food. I wanted it to be about the experience. I wanted to. I wanted it to be about hospitality. And in order to achieve that, I really needed to get the team to buy in that we were there to provide a service that maybe they haven't done before uh, in this community. And if they have, teach me what you know, and I'll teach you what I know. And let's be curious together, and let's succeed together. And I say this with humility, but I understand that Spoon and Sable opening helped raise a bit of the bar in our community here. And and I and the reason I say that with humility is because I've been told that. I don't say that out of fact. And and I see it now more than I've seen it before because I'm seeing people who worked for us go off and do their own restaurant or or food truck or bar. Um, or run or run other organizations or whatever, be chefs of restaurants, whatever it might be, be general managers. And I'm noticing their level of hospitality and service is is on par with what they were trained with when, when they trained with us. That's exciting because that lifts us up as a community. Now, today's episode of Restaurant Strategy is also brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. Great restaurants are built by great teams, and Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, hit labor targets, and keep your entire team connected. With drag-and-drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, tip management, and more, it makes restaurant work a whole lot easier. From back of house to front of house, managers, franchise workers, and larger corporate teams, Seven Shifts has benefits at every single level. Plus, it integrates with the other systems your restaurant already uses, like POS and payroll. Turn your team into your competitive advantage. Restaurant Strategy Podcast listeners get three months absolutely free. Get started at sevenshifts.com slash restaurant strategy. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash restaurant strategy to get three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using Seven Shifts today. That link, of course, is also in the show notes. So... What I want to phrase this the right way because I, I, lo- I love all of this and I think this is really good. What about the experience, right? So if it wasn't the food, and, and I agree with you, I think largely um, the food just has to be there. The food has to be great. Service has to be great. You said earlier there's a difference between service and hospitality. Danny Meyer's written about this. Now Will Godara has his book. He's written about this. Talk to me about how you how you define it. Talk to me about that, and I'll use that as a as a launch pad to, to talk about the experience that you crafted. 
So I, I'll use it. I, what I typically say to my team is if you're walking past the table and they're not your table, you are not the server for that table. And you hear the guests say, oh, you know, what we forgot to order. We forgot to order the crispy potatoes. I would love for you as the server to come to the kitchen and ring in an order of crispy t- potatoes and comp it and give it to the guests that you heard that because it doesn't cost us anything. Sure, it does. Okay, it costs us pennies, but it doesn't cost us a lot of money to give you those potatoes. It costs us more money to not pay attention to you wanting those potatoes. That's a big difference between service and hospitality and, and, and welcoming back people. See, as you know, because you worked at Gotham, it's so funny because I think people that don't live in New York don't fully understand that restaurants like Gotham, restaurants like Cafe Balud and La Bernardin, um, they have regulars, like serious diehard regulars that eat there every day at a certain time or every week at a certain time. And and you're you're building those restaurants for the neighborhood. And as you build a restaurant, the, the guests who frequent it the most end up helping create the personality of what that restaurant will become. That's not something I'm going to create out of a business plan. Um, it's not something I'm going to create out of my P&L statement. It's going to be those moments of hospitality that end up creating the personality of the restaurant that then gives it the legs of longevity. I mean, that's why a restaurant like Gotham is still around. So then how do you, and I love what you're saying, again, this difference between hospitality and service. How does it get? How does that then transform into an experience? An experience that's that's palpable, where someone says, because some of that stuff, uh, the the guest just doesn't notice. Um, we know there's a there's a gen there's a general feeling when they walk out, but they won't know that they did this or that or one other thing. So, how does that then become an experience? And and how did you craft? an experience that would be among the best that they've ever had? Well, you kind of said it in the question. They won't notice. And that's really kind of how you end up creating it. You know, because they'll notice if you don't create it. And, and, and I think ultimately, we all notice that. See, the interesting part about restaurants, and you know this, is that the word restaurant comes from the word restoration to be restored. And we have trained our, ourselves, we've trained our culture to go out to eat and find the experience to be rateable. In fact, you leave a restaurant and Resi or Open Table or Talk or any of these places, any of these platforms, they email you right when you walk out of the restaurant. Rate the experience, one through ten. Well, if you're rating every experience, you're not finding restoration through the experience. And if going out to eat to a restaurant is intended to have you find restoration through that experience... It's our job as the hospitalitarians and the chefs to figure out how to get you to that point of restoration. Some people don't want that. Some people want to come in, they want to have a business dinner, and they want to leave. Some people want to come in, they want to have their date, and they want to be left alone, and they want to leave. Recognizing that is also part of restoration, and it's also part of that experience. So, you know, I'll give you another example. In, in, in our world here, in the Minneapolis area, there can be, like in every other city, an intimidation factor to go out to eat. Oh, my God, I don't know if I want to go out there. I looked at the website. The entrees are $35. It's expensive. It's fancy. I'm not sure that we can go, honey. Right? So if they come into the restaurant and they're already kind of tense and you see their shoulders tense, 
I, I tried to think of a way eight years ago of how do I break away a bit of that stigma? What can I do to sort of like rest them down and say like, no, this, I, I, A, I deserve to be here and B, I belong here. So if there's a celebration, we give you a huge ball of cotton candy. And I can tell you, I've watched for eight years, people make mustaches out of cotton candy, full beards out of cotton candy, put it on their head as wigs as cotton candy, but they take pictures, they laugh, they smile, they have fun. And if you're the table in the corner that doesn't know if you belong here or should be here, when you see other people having that much fun, it becomes contagious. And then you start to have fun. So now our little act of giving you cotton candy has not only done the job for that table of six, but it has inadvertently done the job for the two tops sitting in the corner that maybe thought that they shouldn't be there that night. And that is hospitality. I think that's a really cool thing. I love that you brought that up because, I mean, immediately it makes me think of uh, Four Seasons in New York, right? Famously, they yeah. they did the cotton candy 30 years ago or whatever that was. And Alinea, yeah, where the they do cream. the... You had ice cream underneath too, right? Didn't it? Have ice cream underneath it? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. It was... Uh, and, you know, I, I worked for uh, Laurent Trondel and he would do the... Um, the green apple cotton candy but way back at cello and then at blt um and then you know linea does the uh does the balloons right the the helium filled mm-hmm. uh, sugar yep. balloons to bring a sense of whimsy yep. into this all of this to say is that um i think it's really cool to see uh, the sort of the evolution of fine dining um as uh, americans certainly have become more aware of food and cooking and dining and and what it means to dine well um, watching the next gener- generation take over. And I think so much of the effort has been about to take the pretense out of it. Um, certainly when we see what uh, Dave Chang has done and, and uh, a million other people, um, they've sort of all tried to, you know, to take the the, the board out of it, the, uh, the stiffness out of it, which is, which is cool to see. So there's something that was sort of innate um, there that you were, that you were trying to do. It, it sounds like. Yeah, and, and, it, and in many ways, you know, it's it's about ultimately it's about having having fun and going out and, and enjoying yourself and having a good time. I mean, I'm sure you get asked the question like I do. What's your favorite meal? What's the best meal you've ever had? What's the best restaurant you've been to? And I don't know. I've been to a lot of restaurants, yeah. uh, but I can tell you a lot. I can tell you a lot of the people that I ate with and a meal that I really enjoyed uh, with people that, that I wanted to be around and that I wanted to surround myself with. Um, and those, those are the moments that I remember. And and we, we try to, you know, we try to, we try to do our best to create those moments for people. Yeah. I think more and more it's about creating moments and, and maybe that sounds, that sounds cheesy and a little, um, a little naive, but, uh, I don't remember meals necessarily, but I remember moments. I remember dishes. I remember the first time I had, Uh, Jean George's famous duck, right? I remember mm-hmm. the first time I got the cotton candy. I remember the you know the dessert on the marble at at Alinea. I remember um, the very first nice meal I ever went to was Blue Hill in the West Village, and I remember getting the fresh madelines that they they bring to the table as like a petit four, and they say we just put these in the oven when you finished entrees. They're ready for you. Here's a little bit of jam. It comes from upstate. Blah blah blah. You finish that, and then they come over. They seal up the jars of jam. They put them in a little uh, container, and they send you home with the jam. So it's not only you know the you know the finishing touch on your meal, but it's also your take home gift. That moment, that thing, still twenty years later, still. Um, resonates with me. So there are little there are little moments that um, that I remember. The, the scissors they used to give um, at Franny's, the, the pizza place in Park Slope, right? The the they didn't cut uh, the pizza 
with a pizza slicer. They gave you the giant scissors. It was like there there are things like that 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 I remember. Um, that I, I I often tell uh, restaurants. I said, you know, find those. I sometimes call them Easter eggs. Like if you can come up with twenty or thirty Easter eggs, the idea being mm-hmm. that maybe a customer only comes across three or four of them in their specific meal. Um, mm-hmm. Greg Backstrom, right? When he would do his tea service, right? They they steep the tea and they give you little uh, egg timers, little uh, hourglasses, yeah. uh, little two yeah. minute timers, and the server will bring over the tea and say, "Hey, this is a two minute timer. We we turned it as soon as we put the tea bag in. Uh, we recommend you take it out when it's done. But if you like stronger tea, just steep it a little bit longer. Just turn it over again. It's such a little touch." Um, but those moments at, at Olmsted in Brooklyn sort of sort of make the experience. And so for me, I, I go through all these these little moments, these flourishes um, that, that didn't take a lot, that aren't special. Those little timers are what fifty cents a piece. Um, right. But the fact that somebody stopped and and thought about that, um, I think, is everything to me. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's <clears throat> I think there has to be a real sense of uh, of genuine care when you do something like that you know it's as much as a guest can read into those easter egg moments they can read into the false easter egg moments too you know and feel like oh they they don't really they don't have the best intention to take care of me for this and this is not really their jam or you can feel that it's not really where it's coming from and you know there needs to be a genuine a genuine sincerity to when you're taking care of people you know it's, it's it's really funny because our our profession is um, has been through a lot in the last, you know, five years for sure, but even more. And it's, it's really interesting to see how much it's really pushed and tested us in a way, um, uh, in the, in the act of like really taking care of people. Um, because, because you have to be able to take a step back and find those beautiful Easter egg moments or what we call the majestic moments of, of hospitality and trying to take care of others. And what, what does that look like? And, and how do you make sure that it is genuine and is sincere? So talk to me, uh, because obviously you've expanded, and I want to talk about some of the other concepts that you've uh, that you've built. But as you expand, you need more people. We talk a yes. lot about culture in this in this industry, and certainly on this podcast, we talk about it a lot. How do you how do you get people to genuinely want to take care of people? Um, because I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's also a very hard thing. It's a very difficult thing, and um, it requires a lot of humility. Because often we're spoken to as service professionals, we're spoken to less than ideally. We're, we're yelled at. We're snapped at. We're, you know, we're we're sort of bossed around. And yet, it's still our job to take really great care of people. How do you inspire your team and get them to inspire the the line level employees? Um, to do that, to 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 come in and, and and want that every every single shift. You know, I don't know if there's a lot that we necessarily do intentionally, except that we end up taking really. You know, we do our best to take good care of our team. Um, you know, we don't have we don't at Spoon and Stable and Demi. We don't have a tipping system. It's a it's a hospitality charge. It's an automatic twenty one percent that gets put on the check. Um, it's a very different law here than it is in New York City, so it's hard to compare what Danny did versus what I'm doing. It's not even mm-hmm. apples to apples. It's not even apples to oranges. Um, but but when we implemented implemented that over three years ago at Demi, and I think over two and some years ago at Spoon, 
you know, for sure there were servers that fought us on that and didn't think it was the best in, in their best intention. And, and it's, and it's tr- proven to not be true because we had done tons of research on what it looked like, because if a, if a server does get snapped at or, or, you know, directed at in, the, in, the, in, a, in a way that is unacceptable, we need to be able to step up and say, A, you can't do that. And B, the 21% hospitality charge still, still stays on the bill. <laughs> so that's not coming down. Um, but it, the, the, the way that I often think of how do we inspire our team and how do we get them thinking about hospitality and how do we get them um, wanting to take care of others, it stems from the culture of the organization and the culture of the restaurant that we spent years creating when we first opened eight years ago. Um, and we feed that and we have a lot of the same team and, and, and like every restaurant, you go through phases and there's an adolescence phase. There's a rebellious phase. There's the zit phase. There's all of it. And all of it, all of it exists. I mean, it's, it's part of it. And, and you have to be able to know that that ebb and flow is going to be part of it too. But there are people within our group and within our organization and, and great organizations in my, in my opinion, where that you have people that work for you and with you. They want to help carry that torch to who comes next. And ultimately, now that's our job, right? I mean, our job is to now sort of train this next generation to what what hospitality is all about. I want to switch gears and talk um, sort of about the finances of running a restaurant and, you know, running a profitable restaurant. Um, Talk to me. I mean, obviously, Spoon and Stable is successful. It's obviously profitable. It's still here all these years later. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the process that you went through, because you said you were getting an education uh, from the team at Dynex to help you prep for this and to make sure. So how did you, as much as you possibly could, how did you, what did you do to ensure that this restaurant, that that first restaurant would be profitable? Well, I mean, my occupancy cost is pretty low. That helps, okay. um, you know, looking at looking at fixed costs and figuring out, okay, how much is it going to, how much do I, how much do I need to make to pay rents? Um, and what do those occupancy costs look like? And my occupancy cost is very low. Um, yep. and, and, and building, building that into the pro forma, understanding, you know, from a very, very 30,000 foot level, how many covers do we need to do on every, on any given night? Um, you know, and, and when I had built my pro forma, I, I expected us to not do covers past eight thirty PM. I was told, by multiple people in the community here that nobody will book a reservation after 8.30 p.m. in Minneapolis. It's too late. Now, in New York, that's prime time, okay? So I'm coming from a time, from a place in which that's a prime time reservation slot, and now I'm told I won't get anything past that. Well, that that's not that's not true. I mean, tonight's, tonight is, is, a, is a Tuesday night, and, and we've, we're receiving a winter storm, snowstorm right now, um, and I still have reservations at nine thirty tonight. Yeah. So, you know, it's it. People will come out to eat so long as you give them that opportunity, um, and and you stay and you stay consistent. So the occupancy was a big thing for me, understanding what that looked like, and and really the the amount of covers that I could do on a, on a weekly basis and then on a nightly basis. So, okay, so you build it conservatively. Say, hey, I'm not going to count on anything after 8.30. If I do, great, it'll be gravy. I'll be I'll be happy about it. Keep your occupancy costs low. Talk to me about how you then work with your managers to control the controllables, right? Our prime costs, um, 
cogs and, and labor, which, you know, kill our industry more than most other industries. How do you think about that? Or, or do you think about that at all as you as you build your restaurants? Well, we are, we've been we've been lucky at Spoon because we've been so busy every night that the labor hasn't really needed to shift. I mean, we've never really had to focus. There are a few times in which we've had to say, OK, we need to cut people. Um, so it's when it's when it's consistent and you're doing 200 covers on a Monday and 280 on a Saturday or 250 on a Monday and 280 on a Saturday, if it's that consistent, it makes the cogs very, frankly, easy to run. Um, yep. And so for the first couple of years, the manager running those were me. Um, and I was coming from an organization that was in Danielle's world that was very disciplined and strict in a, in a way that taught me how to run those cogs correctly and very professionally. And so, again, that was my PhD. I mean, I was I was running it from an organization that I knew how to make money um, because I helped make money for them. And so I understood that. And and while I wasn't in the same, I was not getting the same demand that Cafe Blue gets, I wasn't getting the same average check cover, I didn't have the wine list that they had, the principle and, and the core reality of what I needed to do that doesn't change. It's it's whether you're running a burger joint or Cafe Blue, it's the same thing. Um, you just have to be able to adapt, right? I think that's the big thing. You've got to be able to like, you can't be so reactive. And and I think the, the labor, you know, you talk about labor being the number one killer killer in our industry. And I think that's true. But I think I think people being reactive actually kills us more because Explain we're not that. forecasting. Because we're nobody forecasts. You're not you're not looking at things and saying, hey. Listen, we got three conventions in town this weekend. We're probably going to be really busy. Or mm-hmm. we have three conventions in town that has nothing to do with food. So don't overstaff it. We might not actually be that busy. You know, so you have to do more work than just say, what do the books look like tonight? What do the books look like this week? It's like, what do they look like for the next month? Why are yeah. Wednesdays slow? You know, it, what? why is this random Wednesday have 100 covers less than every other Wednesday in that month? What's going on on that Wednesday? Um, when does spring break happen for schools? When is MEA weekend for schools? When do teacher conferences happen? You know, like all of these things take into account, have to take into account, especially when you're in a B market city. When you're in New York, I couldn't tell you when spring break was for those kids, but it doesn't yeah. matter because you have so many tourists. <laughs> right. Right. But right. Spring, break, spring break matters here. Yeah. <laughs> so when, this when, is... when, it, when it hits, it's, it's, an, it's an issue. Yeah, this is music to my ears because I, I I agree, and I've worked with I mean, I've worked for and with I think two hundred restaurants, just just shy of two hundred restaurants over my twenty two years in the industry, um, and I've got you know when you start looking at the common threads, like what do all struggling restaurants have in common, and then what do all successful restaurants have in common, and I've had the great fortune to work for some uh, very bad badly run restaurants um, and I see that as part of my education and then I've had the great fortune to work with some um, some really shrewd business people some really smart uh, restaurateurs um, and I stole all the stuff that works and I uh, and I made sure to earmark all the stuff that wasn't going to work um, and I agree I think one of the big flaws that we have is we don't we don't do enough looking ahead as an industry. Um, it's funny because here we're, we're recording this at the beginning of the year, um, and I'm working with all my clients about uh, properly setting up our performance for the year, um, getting organized, building, uh, building our forecasts uh, for the year, and, and putting uh, a system, uh, systems into place um, to manage every single month and every day of the month. Said, hey, if we forecast we're going to do a certain amount of revenue, 
What does that mean? What do we need to do on the first, on the second, on the third, on the fourth, on the fifth, every day of the month in order to get us to where we think we're going to we're going to be? And it takes such um, takes a, a little bit more effort than otherwise, uh, but it's going to save you so much more, and it allows you. Um, to be proactive in in how you manage your business, which I think makes all the difference. And this is what other industries do, and I just think we don't, because we spend a lot of time getting service right, we spend a lot of time getting the kitchen right, getting the food right, um, and we haven't talked enough as an industry about the business practices, some of the basic business practices. So that's why I was curious, and I'm thrilled to hear you say that, um, because obviously that has influenced um, your expansion. Let's talk about the expansion for a few minutes. Uh, you got Spoon and Stable, that's running, it's going well. At what point were you like, okay, what's next? Yeah, so then, you know, from Spoon and Stable, we then opened up Demi. Um, and well, we actually opened up Belcor, but I ended up closing closing Belcor and I've shifted that. I have two bakeries. Uh, one is in Minneapolis, one is in St. Paul. And then we have Demi, which is a fine dining, 20 seat restaurant. Uh, which is behind Spoon and Stable, meaning the street behind. It's on second, Spoon's on first. Uh, it's very small. It's open five nights a week. It's a ticketed. We go, you go on talk, you buy tickets. It's very much like Alenia or any of these other fine dining establishments. Uh, there's two seatings. It's tasting menus only. We do 200 covers a week. Uh, and that now I'm sitting in Mara, which is inside of the Four Seasons in Minneapolis, which we opened up about seven months ago. Um, and we partnered with the Four Seasons here to open up this restaurant, which is a Mediterranean restaurant. Then I have two catering companies. I have one one called Spoon Thief Catering. That's for the general. I would you know for the I would call it for the general public, but just for anybody who wants to have a dinner party or whatever it might be. And then I have another catering company called KZ Provisioning, in which we cook for the pro athletes. So we're the official chef team for Minnesota Wild, the Minnesota Timberwolves, and the Minnesota Lynx. So our men's and women's basketball team and our men's hockey team. Excellent. How did all of that? So, talk to me about expansion. Because you rattle through it, you make it sound so easy. Um, yeah. We did this, we did that, we're doing this, and now we're doing all this stuff. Talk to me about, you got Spoon and Stable. At what point were you like, okay, we can expand? You said you expanded, uh, you opened a restaurant called Belcor. That, you decided to close that and sort of shift the concept. Talk to me about that. You know, I think opening, <clears throat> going from one restaurant to two, Andrew Carmelini said this, he was right. Going from one to two is hard. Going from two to three is easy. Going from three to four is easier. Going from four to five can be easier. And the reason is, is because when you go from one, for t one, from one to two, you do not have the infrastructure to, have, to manage two. You also don't have the capital to then manage two. So you need to increase your revenue because you're paying more out in labor in order to manage these two restaurants. Whereas before, you were the chef, you had one GM, you had one sous chef, you know, you only have one or two of everything. Now you have two, three, four of everything. When you go to a third restaurant, it becomes easier because you have an infrastructure. Now, we have a director of operations, we have a chief of staff, we have a director of accounting, we have a director of communications, you know, we have an executive chef for the company. So we have all of these things put in place. But it takes time to build that. It takes them trusting you uh, that you are ultimately looking to try to build more. Um, but you don't need to grow for the sake of growing. I think often what happens is, is that we, we find success in our first restaurant and we are gifted, given another opportunity and we jump at it. We say, okay, let's do it again. That was successful. <clears throat> I probably said no 50 times before I said yes on the second restaurant. And that was because I wanted to build something that, that meant something to me. 
and it was a great restaurant. I just did the wrong deal with the wrong landlord. And, and so that's okay. It's not their problem. It's not my problem. It just didn't make sense. It's all good. It happens. It's business. Um, and we were able to move it out and change it into bakeries and do what we need to do. And, and, and they were able to fill that space with another friend of mine, actually, who, who runs a successful restaurant in that space. And I'm, and I'm happy for them. But growth and expansion, it takes time. And it takes time to, to, to build the trust that you need to have in your team, that they will operate the business with you and for you when you are there or when you are not there. What makes it really hard when people talk about expansion, I mean, I look at Danielle, I look at Jean-Georges, I look at these guys that have restaurants all over the world, and I think to myself, how do they do it? You know, like, just even, you know, anytime you are awake or asleep, somebody in your company is serving food. That's yeah. insane, you know? <laughs> but they've been, able to, they've been able to compartmentalize that stress, and they've been able to trust the teams that they've put in place, that they've built, to run that organization and that that corner of their restaurant for them successfully. And that's really what it comes down to. See, it it falls back on ego, honestly. I mean, the 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 more you want to expand, there there's ego with it. The less you want to expand, there's ego with it. You know, it just depends <laughs> which which one do you want to feed? Which one do you want to feed? Um, so, you know, cuz you can be afraid of failure. Yeah. So then, so then, tell me, why, why did you want to expand? Well, I, I saw an opportunity, especially with Demi, and especially with the bakery. I mean, our bakeries are partnered up with a, a local retail shop called Cooks of Crocus Hill, and they sell kitchen equipment, supplies. They do cooking classes. So there was a real opportunity there for us to be able to do something together, um, in the sense that they had the space, we had a product, we found the marriage to make sense. Demi, I didn't see a restaurant in our community that was doing food that was pushing to a level um, that I would consider Michelin star food and and service. And so I found this tiny 1,200-square-foot space, and what else are you going to do with it but put a 20-seat restaurant in? Um, and so that's what we did. Mara was an opportunity that was presented to us four years ago by United Properties and the Four Seasons Organization and we jumped at that as an opportunity because I had had history working with Four Seasons through Danielle at Cafe Blue in Toronto. So while it seems like the expansion was this, 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 they were all very methodical. You know, they were all they were all thoughtful in in how we wanted to expand and how we wanted to grow. It wasn't a wow, this seems really shiny and fun. Let's go look at that. Right. Talk to me about you personally. How your role has evolved as the company has expanded because you can't be on the line in all of these restaurants. Obviously your, your role has to um, evolve and grow. So talk to me about that. Cause I'm sure that was something of a personal journey. Um, so walk me through that for a few minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, I think any chef that tells you otherwise is probably lying, but it's a bit of an identity crisis when you go from being, a chef on the line every single night working with your team to, okay, I got to take a step back. You know, I'm going to show up at service tonight at 6.30 p.m. because I've got a lot of meetings and things that I need to take care of. And I hope that I don't get judged by my cooks because I'm showing up at 6.30 p.m. So there's an identity crisis there that you're like, what am I doing? <clears throat> when you actually take a step back and you look at it, what you are doing is you are helping set them up 
to succeed at the job that they are doing. And so I've, I've come to realize that my job um, has transferred. I'm, I'm you know, I, yes, I'm a chef through and through. Give me a knife, give me a cutting board. I'm happy as a clam. I'm also the CEO of a company that has over 150 employees. And my responsibility is to provide for those 150 employees. And whether that's through their pay, their 401k, their health benefits, et cetera, et cetera, that's my responsibility. And so I take that responsibility seriously. And and as a result, I don't have the identity crisis for showing up at 6.30 to service because I've been in meetings all day. I recognize that I needed to be in those meetings in order to get me there, in order for that restaurant to be busy for me to be able to show up. Um, and so I take great pride in that. I think that the role kind of just changes and then it evolves. It also doesn't mean that you're going to be in that forever. You know, that's the other thing. I think that, that we get into this mindset of like, okay, I'm the chef. I'm never going to do anything else. It's like, well, yeah, you can, but then you're handcuffed to a kitchen for the rest of your life. And if you want that, that's amazing. Then be that. And, and I applaud you for that. And I'm all, and I'm all for it. My life is just ta- taking a little bit different of a route with that expansion. Yeah, I mean, I bring up the question because I think it's uh, it's something we don't talk about enough uh, as an industry. We don't talk about growth, and we don't talk about, I don't know, we don't talk about personal evolution, let alone uh, professional evolution, and I think um, and I think we should. And so I, I'm sort of making a, a more deliberate attempt to, to have these conversations, because you do. I mean, when I went from... Um, from managing, running restaurants, opening restaurants, running restaurants, to then consulting for restaurants, I felt hugely guilty, even though it was exactly what I wanted to do because I wanted to reclaim some time with my family and gain more flexibility in, in my life. But going from those 70-hour work weeks, which, you know, you, we sort of wear as a as a badge of honor, like, well, yeah, like that that's just what you do. And I think we were very much raised um, culturally uh, in the industry the same way. And yet that's not entirely healthy or helpful at a, at a certain point. Sometimes, yeah, you just gotta, you just gotta do the work and there's just nothing you can do except show up and run, you know, run the station you gotta run. Um, but then at a certain point, there are things that you can do that no one else in the company can do, right? But you're the, you're, you're the head, the buck stops there. You're the CEO. Um, you have to make decisions that, that no one else will be entrusted to do. And I think, um, and I think that's something that operators at all levels, uh, should hear and i and i hope they they hear that um well I, and, and i think that, you know i was just going to say the, the other thing too that i think that's <clears throat> that that i'm trying to be more intentional about too is i'm trying to be more intentional about allowing us the opportunity to not be an industry anymore and and being being the, the reality that we're a profession you are a professional at what you do i've seen you on the floor i've seen the at your door so you you are a professional. I'm a professional at what I do. And as professionals, our job is to train the amateurs to become professionals. I love that. And if we if, if we only think of ourselves as an industry, we will always wear the seventy hour badge on our on our chest in a way that makes us feel resentful for what it is we're trying to do. But if we wear but if we work seventy hours as a professional then we walk away with pride. I don't see any doctor walking out of the emergency room after working 90 hours and feel resentful for it. I see them as prideful because they're a professional at what they do. And that's what, that's the way that we need to be. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a change that I that I hope hits our industry in the next 10 years. You, you bring up the surgeon, right? There's no surgeon working a 90-hour week. I don't want any surgeon operating on me 
in their 88th or 89th, right? They do a day or two of surgeries. They do a, a day or two of office visits and things like that. But that's it. They work very hard, and they've worked very hard to do that, and they fulfill a very important role. But they themselves understand, for the most part, that balance is required, that you can't there's – a, there's a point when I can't, I can't hold the scalpel anymore. I will be no good to the patient on my table. And I think the same is true for our industry, and, um, and I feel that way about chefs, feel that way about managers. I feel that way particularly about owners just because that's um, – that's the group that I spend a, a lot of time with, uh, coaching and helping to consult for uh, independent operators all over the country. I, I just, I think we owe it to ourselves to uh, to build our businesses differently than we have done it. And we talked, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, on this interview about the next generation taking over, and it's it's something I very much hope we change that we build business. I would say, you know, restaurant owners deserve uh, restaurants that work as hard as they do. Um, and, and I feel like we owe it to ourselves to build those kind of businesses. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say when we opened Spoon, uh, I deliberately had uh, built it in a way that that had that in mind. I mean, our chef team and and myself, we work five days a week, and and you are you are required to take two days off in a row, whatever those two days are. And our cooks and our and our in the kitchen. I'm just talking kitchen only. And the cooks and the and the porters and the prep cooks. They all work. They all work four days a week. And so it gives them time to have a bit of rest and relaxation. Yes, some of them get a second job for that fifth or sixth day because they 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 either need it or or they want it. Um, and some take those three days to go up and you know go fishing. And yep. and just get your mind off of things, and so it's it's important to build that deliberately. I agree. I, I love that. I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, I didn't realize that about it, and I wouldn't have thought to ask. So thank you for offering it up. Um, we're coming to the end of our time. I did uh, I did want to ask you. We talked about this big market, small market thing. What has been easier? This is probably a good place for us to to finish up our conversation. But what's been easier about running uh, restaurants in a smaller market? like Minneapolis as compared to a New York or a Los Angeles? And what has been harder? I mean, easier is you can get more national press easier because people are paying attention to what's <clears throat> in smaller markets. Um, what's harder is that you can't get the product, the same product that you can get in the bigger markets. I mean, it's it's harder for me to get certain things here. Not that the quality is necessarily less, but the the consistency or the amount of times in which I can get that on a, on a daily and or weekly basis can be a challenge. And that's not a jab on any company I work with here. It's just a, it's just a jab on the infrastructure of the reality. There's less mm -hmm. restaurants to service. So there's not always a second vegetable truck going around the, the city to, to drop off the pound of chives you forgot to order or whatever it might be. Um, you know, there, there just aren't those, those realities here. So that can, that can make it difficult. Uh, both the, but, but in, <laughs> the other thing that I love about being in a smaller market and it's, it is true even in bigger markets is that you get to know your guests really well and you get to learn who they are and the nuances of what they like and what they don't like. And, and you can really create, um, a relationship with them that is, that is quite beautiful to see over time. And, and you watch them kind of grow up in your, in your restaurant uh, you see their kids grow up or their their friends grow up with them and what that looks like. And it's really cool. But I'd say those are probably the two polar opposite realities of, of yeah. being in a small market versus a big market. 
Yeah, for sure. I think any of us who have made a, a career, who have built a life in hospitality, loves the the relationships that we built. And like you said, you get to see, yeah. you know, kids get born and kids grow up and kids go off to college. And uh, that's certainly uh, been a very cool part of uh, of what I've done. Um, listen, I, I want to talk about the cookbook, um, but you can't get the cookbook anywhere in this country. Um, talk to me briefly about your cookbook uh, and why why you did it. So it's called At Home. Uh, Nick Falchall wrote the book with me, uh, who I <clears throat> knew from the New York days, actually. And uh, he worked for Food & Wine magazine, probably when you met him as well. And so we, we wrote the book. It started out, we, we had all of this content. We were doing GK at Home cooking classes online. We had all this content. We had all these recipes. And we kind of got to a point where we said, okay, what are we going to do with it all? And, and uh, uh, Kylie, who's a colleague of mine, suggested we do a cookbook. And so we, we turned it into a cookbook. We self-published the cookbook, which is another uh, kind of crazy route. And I will tell you, we sold out of the first print basically by publication date. Uh, our second print will be here in mid uh, probably third week of January. So you could go on to the website, GavinCason.com, and pre-order the book, and you will get it in a couple of weeks. It sold better than we ever anticipated it to sell, and I think the second round is going to sell even better. Great. So uh, by the time this airs, uh, those will be out and available. Uh, I'm very excited by that. I went to look for it. I was like, I couldn't find it anywhere. It's impossible to get. Yeah, um, I know. I can get a secondary market, but I was paying. Uh, I was paying a very small fortune, uh, not only for the book, but for the shipping of the <laughs> book. The shipping. Like 70, yeah, I was going to say it's always it was like seventy five dollars shipping. I was like, I'll just wait for the reprint. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, listen, what's next for the let's What's next for the company? So we're gonna we're working on another bakery in a collaboration with the cooks of Crocus Hill team. Uh, it, we're gonna open that here in the Twin Cities as well in a suburb called Edina, which is about ten minutes outside of Minneapolis. So ideally, we'll open up that in the spring and uh, start to push the professional catering business a little bit more and see what else pops our way. Listen, it's really great. Um, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I want to give you a chance we're going to include uh the links to all of your stuff but is there anywhere in particular you want to send people to learn more about you and everything you're up to i mean the best way is to go to spoonandstable.com and you'll find every you'll find everything there and you know thanks so much for ha- having me i'm always grateful to be on these these podcasts and be able to talk through what it is i mean sometimes just being reflective for an hour is so helpful yeah, I uh, listen, I, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, and I want to, uh, we're going to figure out a time to get you back because we didn't even talk about the catering. Uh, and catering is something I feel so passionately about. Uh, it's such an uh, opportunity for restaurants uh, everywhere at every different level. Um, I'm, I'm sure you agree. You're nodding your head. So I'm sure you've yep, seen the, uh, the, the power of uh, selling dinners uh, en masse uh, rather than just two at a time. Um, last words, of uh, wisdom, anything you want to share with the audience before I let you go? Stay curious. You know, I think I, I always, <clears throat> I always learned that when I was with Danielle, his curiosity always struck me. Um, and still, even at the age that he's at, which is not old because he will, he will slap me if I say that. Uh, I love to see how curious he still is. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really great place to end it. Uh, listen, Gavin, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, congrats on all the success, all the best to you in the future. Thank you so much. Again, I want to thank Gavin for taking time to chat with me today. As always, you will find the links in the show notes. I hope you got some value out of today's episode. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, and I will see you next time.